We bout that inner fulfillment, sipping the cab, never spilling. Pinot Merlot, and any way the grape can give us that feeling. Business and marketing, sales revealing all of that realness. Health is wealth, are you with me? We talking wellness and chilling. Spilling anything but a drop. It's important to tell, it's not just about cash, but it's about doing more for yourself. So pour a glass, don't have to share with anyone else. Leave your problems on the shelf. You tuning in to wine and wealth. Woo, what's up, everybody? This episode of Wine and Wealth was a ton of fun. I had an old friend of mine, Anthony Mullen, who is my spirit animal. He's a clinical psychologist in Manhattan, New York. Also happens to be a truly badass rock and roll guitarist for a band called The Black Fire. So, of course, you know we had to have him on. We had a good time. I had a little bit too much wine, to be honest with you, because we were reliving some of our rock and roll days. But it was a lot of fun. Hope you enjoy it. We get into some deep stuff about psychology, what's going on in the world today, and, of course, rock and roll. Side note, I'm super jealous of the guy, and I always will be. For he got to open up for my favorite rock and roll band in the world, Aerosmith. Enjoy this wide-ranging conversation with my friend, Anthony Mullen. What's up, my brother? Finally, finally, finally. I know I've been asking you for a hot minute to get on here, so I appreciate it. So, Absolutely. Uh, happy, you, happy to be here. And and you, now do you, I know you work at the... Uh, Manhattan psychiatry. What's the name of where you work? Or- well, so that was when we obviously were we had played some shows together. Manhattan yeah. Psychiatric Center. That's yeah. where I did uh, my internship. Which uh, okay. Like what psychologists do? Their equivalency of like a med school residency. Right. So yeah, worked there for a year. Did some consulting afterwards. Even after I left. We are now. I'm a, a clinical psychologist. I got my license. Um, so do you have your own practice? Is that um, is that how I it works or what? Um, some people do go into private practice. I'm still, I'm with a company now um, that's a psychological services company that provides psych services for like um, skilled nursing facilities. What they call really? It. So they place psychologists uh, in these facilities, uh, which are like what they call subacute care, where someone might have some medical condition, they were in a hospital aren't quite ready to go home yet. So mm. they'll go to skilled nursing facility for ongoing care. But again, all of this is very stressful. It's not ideal, not in anyone's life plan. So usually they're like, well, we're pretty sure our patients are upset. So they grab the psychologist, they're like, go on, go talk to these, these people and try and help them. You know, right. a lot of depression, anxiety, some undiagnosed, some people have already been in treatment. Um, so yes, I work. I work, um, yeah, in a skilled nursing facility. Yeah, so interesting. I um, I just got started with a startup that is a tech startup in senior living. So, like, obviously, part of that skilled nursing. Yeah, I'm, I'm getting into the world of navigating, selling like systems, and holy shit, what a crazy just like navigating the decision making process of those places is crazy. Yeah, it's a very complicated. There's a lot of freaking hands in the cooking jar, quite honestly. Yeah, because there's an owner of the facility that maybe you meet, maybe you don't. But then there's an administrator, different managerial staff, medical nursing, blah, blah, blah. Yeah. And obviously they're bringing you in to provide a solution, which you have to listen to many different voices. Yeah, and they all got their own wants. (laughs) I'll leave it there. Yeah, exactly. So you mentioned it. 
uh, man, last time we saw each other, I was in New York uh, for predating that. We met each other in rock and roll. Oh, we certainly yeah. did. So yeah, I we- saw on Facebook, by the way, that it looks like there's a new Blackfires song coming out. Is this true? Uh, new new song, uh, new songs. Yeah, we're recording um, at the moment. Um, obviously, that got put on pause a little bit um, yeah. since the lockdown in, in in March. But now the studio's open again. Uh, the new the second full length. So we had this first full length in 2017. This is the follow up to that. We've been lucky, lucky enough. We were at um, Germano Studios, which is the the family that own the Hit Factory, which oh, cool. you know is a well known studio in New York. But um, yeah, through a, through a good friend of ours, we were able to get into the studio. And um, I mean, it's really cool. Like uh, Keith Richards did his last solo record there. The Stones were in there somewhat recently. Bon Jovi did 2020 there. And then us, this, you know, the Blackfires, un- unknown, unknown band, you know, we've done some okay things. But anyway, you've done be, some okay things. But, but to be in there is a, a real privilege. Um, so we are gearing up to to go back in there and finish guitars. We were about halfway through, I think, rhythm guitars when COVID hit. Oh, so, so you so it was COVID hit in the middle of the recording process. Yes. So you're not doing what most of us are doing, which was, oh, we got nothing better to do. Let's go to the studio. You were actually in the middle of the creative process. Yeah, we were already there. Um, but we did use obviously if we weren't meeting for rehearsals or anything, but like we're doing now over, I know you were just doing audio, but over Zoom, we did these writing sessions to finish up the lyrics for all this stuff so <laughs> that when the studio opens and we're able to get back in, which is around now for us, yeah, um, we're ready to go. So we're there basically 95% done. There's going to be some tweaks, obviously, once yeah. the pulls come in. So uh, y- y'all have been... Blackfires have been at it for a long time. How did the Zoom thing go as a band? I mean, you're the first one I've talked to that's actually done that. So, um, well, it went. I think the importance of it was that we, yeah, it went. Yeah, <laughs> it you're went. Like, so you're kind of learning on the fly. Right. Um, the fact that we showed up is, I'd say, whatever. We're going to pat ourselves on the back. You know, you know yourself, musicians. Um, can sometimes be sort of flaky and then given the stresses of <laughs> this and that. But we agreed instead of obviously the in-person rehearsals, well, let's do Zoom. Um, it was interesting trying to write over Zoom because uh, you'd have to pick one person as the audio source because if you had too many, then there's a latency and then you're hearing five different things. Um, so we designated, I think it was Joe would kind of just keep playing the loop and then we'd all be like almost like in jeopardy you you have your time to write something down over the whatever you're hearing okay stop you go now you sing over this bit now you sing and whoever had the best idea or i like this you know that kind of thing which uh, uh, honestly it sounds terrible i mean it really was <laughs> it, it was terrible awful. <laughs> it was terrible yeah yeah so what I, how the boys doing by the way like so is everyone doing okay like you know, I know not everyone's a PhD in, uh, you know, psychology. In psychology. So how, um, how are the guys doing? Overall, I think everyone's doing well. Um, you know, Sebastian, our bassist, he's, he's uh, an interesting guy. I mean, he works at the United Nations. So obviously their response to COVID has been 
important and he's been overwhelmingly busy you know busy mm-hmm. um so he's fine i mean i guess he's been stressed with work but that only makes him more motivated to get music uh you know under his belt and, and to play um i think for for joe our drummer he was he was already working somewhat remotely for ibm mm-hmm. and then now covid hit well yeah just keep doing your job at home so cool he was fine um yeah, Chegi, our lead singer, he had some sort of life changes and seemed to be living in a few different places during COVID, but some of them really nice. Like uh, he was um, in this lake house in upstate New York and was like one with nature. So I don't know, that helped him with his creative process, writing lyrics. Um, he's, a, he's a radio station manager and DJ, and he just moved from one of the stations in Little Russia in Brooklyn to the other. So he's he's been having a few transitions during COVID. Yeah, yeah. Seems to be happy with it, you know. I, I guess he's trying to use it as like fuel for the creative process. Right. And then that leaves us with Hector, who, yeah, I mean he's he's a guitar teacher, so he's had to use Zoom for music lessons. Which again, mm-hmm. we just talked about trying to write over Zoom. I mean, imagine trying to take lessons. I suppose you can do it, but it's difficult you know i mean it could set the stage for a good platform for later right especially yeah i mean i mean look the blackfires have an incredible story right in terms of what what y'all have done so if he's able to get good at this and leverage that the story of where he comes from into that over zoom if you get good at it you, you know you be your own man make a little coin yeah i, I right? think i think that's a, a great point um yeah, yeah i mean Knowing Hector, I mean, I think he's got his pre-existing students. I don't know how much of uh, he's pushing the business right now, but yeah. he's doing some production as well from for a couple of uh, young singers. Um, not to make him out to be a dirty old man, but they happen to be young, young female singers. That, uh, <laughs> oh, hey, you know, they, he's he... <laughs> follow the money, brother. Come on now. I mean, it's yeah. not like dirty. It's not like balding dudes like us are making any money in singing. So come on now. Right, yeah, and no, he, <laughs> he's got a music composition degree and and is classical trained. So I, do I didn't know that he is a fantastic guitar. Well, so are you, by the way. So it, it, I was checking out the YouTube page. It's how I found out you got some new stuff dropping on the Facebook page, and I came across the like the tour videos, and I just go fuck. I'm so jealous. So. I know I asked you back in the day, yeah. how the hell did you end up in Russia opening up for Aerosmith? But admittedly, those were the days where, you know, my, my memory's a little fuzzy because of, you know, <laughs> there could be some certain things going on back in the day. Yeah. Tell me again how the hell that happened. Because for the for the audience that doesn't know and just listening, you've, you've played some pretty, in you know, enviable gigs for those of us who are in the rock and roll scene um yeah i mean i i, I agree i mean the dream come true like i like i told you then and I'll, I'll always say that some of these gigs that we've been able to do it's sort of justification and a type of gratification for what you, you know for what you do um so with aerosmith i mean it was just like a culmination of factors um our lead singers from russia that's one he used to live in moscow um, and then just a couple of chance factors, I suppose, like me, I moved to New York in 
2008, about a month later, I was coming back from Boston because I still happened to be in shape from rowing at Oxford and I rode an alumni race in Boston. Anyway, I decided to stay and party. So I uh, get too drunk, miss my bus, end up having to get the train. And lo and behold, half an hour outside of New York on this train, Brad Whitford gets on from Aerosmith <laughs> with Eric Johnson, of all people. We kind of struck up a com conversation. Um, they were in town to play this Experience Hendrix thing. Hold on, time out, time out. Let me yeah. stop you there. How the fuck do you just strike up a conversation with Brad Whitford? Well, I was coming back from, you know, the whenever those shitty galley cars they have where it costs like $10 for a packet of chips and, you know, something. And just as I was walking back, we'd, we'd stopped. I guess it was in Connecticut. And I'm having to walk past these two guys to my seats and as I get closer I realize that they look familiar and they've got guitars on the shoulders and and that that was it I was like I had to walk past them anyway and excuse me you you know you I think you are and they were got talking um they were in New York for to play Experience Hendrix kind of became friends over that and then I remember saying at the time I'd just moved to New York I you know I'm, I'm doing my PhD but I want to start a band I don't know anyone in New York, this and that. And, you know, Brad himself, at least was saying, you know, well, find the right guys, as you know, is, as we all know, it's very difficult. And fast forward years later, like, kind of had the band. Um, yeah, and it was looking enough. I was in Vegas, got to jam with Joe Perry. And then, I don't know, one thing kind of led to another. And we were just, we knew Aerosmith were, were doing this tour of Europe and the US, but one of the stops was Moscow. And I just had this crazy idea. Well, what if we just submit and see? And we submitted and we got selected. Wow. That's Among, insane. Amongst a few other bands. There were like 10 other opening bands. And, you know, I guess, uh, yeah, they, they chose us. So we felt really obviously fortunate. I mean, dream come true, like I said, just. Yeah. It's just like putting the pieces together and let's propose this. Maybe it works, maybe it doesn't. Right, you took a shot. It's crazy, you know, how many people just don't even walk up to Brad. First of all, it begs to just say this out loud. There's a lot of people that would walk past Brad Whitford. <laughs> right? right. Yeah. yeah. I guess so, yeah, unless you're, you know, you and I know, because right. we're, we're dying-in-the-wall rock and roll fans. Yeah, but, I mean, it's not like walking past Steven Tyler or Joe Perry. Yeah. yeah I mean... Let's be real. So the probably the fact that you stopped him and you're like, hey, you know, like what's well, you probably didn't do it like that. That'd be fucking creepy. But like you were like, hey, what's <laughs> Well, up? I I do remember him saying actually to my then girlfriend at the time, because we we hung out the next night after the experience Hendrix thing. And he was calling me out, but in a polite way. He's like, Oh well, you know, Anthony kinda was walking past me, kind of freaking out a little bit. <laughs> yeah, you were, and I was like, no, I was I was very calm, wasn't I? And he's like, no, no, you kind of freaked out a little bit. That's <laughs> all right. Well, it helps with from a guitar player to guitar player, not like total fanboy. Because, yeah. I mean, he wrote, he wrote prolific songs. I mean, that's what people, if you're an Aerosmith fan, you know that he, you know, riff master of a lot of those songs. Absolutely, that, yeah. That I mean, come to love. Incredible. Yeah riff writer and you know and his solos too i think are stand out you know last child uh, kings and queens mm, you so. said it man last child's one of my favorites it's kind of a bummer about covid too i mean my wife and i were really looking forward to that farewell tour 
that they kind of like put off and they did the yeah. residency and you're kind of like waiting for them. I mean, last time I saw them was the nine lives tour. Well, so yeah, wow, that's uh, that, which that's a long time ago. Favorite, favorite record, yeah, that's yeah. what ninety. It's funny you said that. It's one of your favorite records. I thought I think it's such a dynamic record. It's so interesting is the best way to put it in the journey that it takes you through. I mean, it doesn't get enough credit. Yeah, I mean, people I've seen written and heard that you know they shit on it, piss on it, whatever. But I, you know, they they started it and restarted it like Glenn Ballard, Alanis Morissette's brother or something anyway what what they ended up with i personally like yeah i agree maybe oh how old are you uh now fucking hell 36 mate so we're about the same age so it hit us in our prime like kind of late teens early 20s kind of it's kind of a cool time for that that stuff Um, yeah i think that's why there's some nostalgia associated with that probably absolutely yeah so um the uh the interesting thing why i think we got along so well really early on because we figured out like oh shit we're two rock and rollers crazy dudes right and then uh we live this professional life so do the people you work with know this part of you do they do they or how about like does anybody like how do you manage this i mean um well i suppose co- you know colleagues friends definitely know like you right know, you tell we're, we're good mates um yes i tell friends openly about my life i suppose colleagues you have to you know, we've all been in professional situations. The more you get to know somebody, maybe you choose to disclose right. to them what you're up to on a weekend or this and that. I mean, working as a clinician, I've, yeah, some people I have told. Um, the funny thing is it's been, it's been weird. So I'll tell psychologists, oh, you know, like I in a band you know we, we talk about self-care for instance well mm-hmm. what do you do outside psychology because you know a huge aspect of being in the healthcare professions is you have to take care of yourself constantly to make sure that you do your job so i tell them about arts and playing music is very important to me in terms of self-care and some people have you know there's kind of take it earnestly like oh that's that's nice you know you, you play in a band um, and then some, I remember earlier on in my training were saying, oh, well, you're going to have to give up on that. Um, really? Because, you know, like it's so hard to get your doctorate and to be a serious clinician and blah, blah, blah. And I thought, yeah, maybe you're right. But also that sounds maybe like something you would have trouble with or maybe you gave up on, you know, and some people indeed had been artists but stopped it to pursue um, psychology. Then on the other side of the coin, I've met musicians we'll all talk to each other. Hey, what do you do to make money when you're in between gigs? Cause as we know that the grind of being a musician is very difficult. Yeah. Especially you know, no one wants to pay you any money for, for this. Well, yeah, especially rock and roll, especially that the genre that we picked is it very lucrative. Right. But yeah. yeah and yeah. again, but we, we love it and there's integrity, you know, uh, behind that. Yeah. Back in the heyday, like where rock music was pop music. Again, we were born in the I suppose wrong era. For, Here we are. But so I've talked to some musicians and I'll say, yeah, I'm a psychologist or I'm, at least a few years ago, I'm studying to be, I think some people thought I was joking. Um, and so it's funny, but both sets of people don't think that I'm being serious about what I'm doing <laughs> with the, like the rest of my There's no time. way. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And then I suppose if they meet me enough times or become friends, like, well, he's he's keeping with this story. He must really be doing this or he's just sticking with his, 
is delusion or whatever. Um, but yeah, the, with, with a few psychologists as well, you know, seen on Facebook, they're like, oh, when you said you're playing a band, I was thinking, you know, acoustic guitar, Dave Matthews covers uh, in a bedroom kind of thing. <laughs> yeah. Um, which is nothing wrong with that. No. Uh, yeah. no. Well, let's be honest. <laughs> no. right, we we don't have to point punches. I mean, when you say that, most people are like, "Oh, the the most rocking thing they think you do is you play in like in a blues cover band on the weekends doing Eric Clapton covers." Yeah, right? you know, I mean, that's kind of what first thing. And then they the next thing they want to tell you is, "Oh, my cousin's in a band. They play like Motley Crue," and you're like, "Oh, fuck, man, stop! Like, this yeah, is not this, the road this, it was supposed to go down." <laughs> you know? Yeah, trying but, to. Well, just trying to explain to people that you do actually write music and then you have this whole separate passion. That's it's honestly, it's its whole separate grind. Yeah. That's what's absolutely. weird about it, right? Like you're you're grinding on the PhD side, right? To be a, a clinician that helps people, but then you got a passion that quite frankly, we chose a grind. It's yeah. kind of weird to to explain to people and they go, Wow, you put yourself through that. And just like I love both. I just I love both. Yeah, it's not even a question. It's well, I love, yeah, well, I I love doing it. I mean, especially the the musical side. Um, maybe one is able to exist because of the other. You know, at least be using other skills that you have. To unfortunately, you know, we we do need to earn money. This is the way the world works. You know, yeah. you got to tick your boxes. But once those are ticked, you can divert energy to something else that you love. You know, it's like you're paying for your art in a way. Which, which sometimes is lucrative, you know, some, sometimes the checks are few and far between, but I think you're much happier doing that because if you just give it up just to have a profession to make money, you know, something more typical, you know, um, the road m most travel on kind of thing. And how fulfilling that is, you know, uh, I mean, I don't have to tell you. Yeah. Uh, I think there's like this weird thing that happens, right? You know, we enter our mid thirties. I don't know what it was like for you. Cause being on a clinician path takes a lot of dedication and, you know, from an education standpoint, yeah. something that I didn't have the stamina for my path was more, I mean, around 08, 09, the company that I was selling for dissolved. And, uh, but the first thing that happened, my boss called me in and fired me. And he was like, you're not going to make it in this business. If you want to be a musician and sell. And I was like, you know, I kind of took it as a challenge. I was like, you want to bet? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> fucking says you. I'll, yeah, I'll exactly. It's kind of like what you you know you alluded to it earlier. And then I, that that company, it was more of a series of dominoes that fell after that. He dissolved the whole thing. It was just he was it was a whole thing, anyways. But after that, I had kind of a pad of money. I took a little bit of unemployment because he did lay me off, and. I pursued all in on music. I was like, you know what? I'm going to go all in on this. And when I started to get older and we kind of, you know, Goliath peaked in terms of we, we yeah. charted on billboard. We had played some of the big festivals. And then I realized that you're still in the like two zero column, like the hundreds of dollars column. I was like, this isn't sustainable. And then yeah. boom, you meet, your wife, and then it's really not sustainable. Then you have a kid, then it's really, really not sustainable. So, like you said, you got to pay the bills and check the boxes. But then there's like an age thing that comes in. I mean, it's just a harsh reality. It's mm -hmm. a young man's game in rock and roll. So I look at it and go, I can say I did my best. 
And I can also say I'm not I'm not throwing in the towel. I'm still who I am, playing punk rock, playing rock and roll. And, you know, just I happen to be talking to you and saying this, but from a mental health perspective, I mean, it is it is incredible. I mean, I imagine we all got our own things and demons, but there's a part of me that leans towards punk rock and aggressiveness for a reason. Mm -hmm. If that avenue wasn't there, I don't know what it would feel like. It'd be kind of weird, man. It's actually, I feel it a little bit not playing live. I mean, do you, are you, I mean, God, I could imagine Mm -hmm. what New York's like, but there's no hope here in North Carolina to play live for a while. It's got, are you, are you, yeah. by the way, are, are you feeling any, how are you feeling with all yeah, this? Yeah, I mean, I absolutely, I, I think there, there are effects of, you know, not being able to do something that we love. I mean, you know, just saying it quite simply like that. Yeah. Um, I've certainly felt the tension. It's almost like, you know, same thing. If you work out for long enough and then you take it away, you start to feel that pent up kind of frustration, aggression, mm. energy that, in the same way, the arts kind of, you know, t- it takes the energy. Freud, I don't know, Freud called it sublimation. That's one thing I was thinking. I was trying not to say it. I thought I'll sound like a twat saying that, but, you know, whatever. I'll, it's I'll right. just go with it. That's what I was thinking of. We're using this energy to, to, to do something with it. So I've certainly felt that way. And the live performance, I mean, there's nothing quite like it. You know, we've all played to the bartender, and the couple of people working in the venue we've done those shows and we've all done you know bigger shows and i mean both you have the release and if you're able to still give your energy you feel i mean there's nothing better than that you know that there's 45 minutes to an hour of catharsis if you will and you know let's forget about paying taxes and all the fucking bs you know we're playing our music and uh, yeah there's nothing quite like that so now that that's been taken away i definitely feel um a loss i've done a few of these live stream shows not with the Blackfires, but there's a session guitarist with this artist that i play with in new york um danelia cotton's a name um and those those have been great i've i've enjoyed them but yeah there's obviously something missing it's yeah it's something but it's not quite the same and then we did a couple of a live shows um one in woodbridge jersey like very distanced so, like the crowd was fucking way away from you wait what do you mean were they like in their cars or something like how <laughs> they were they weren't in the cars but they were probably about i don't know if you had your tape measure 20 feet to the for the first line and then these little boxes that people oh, weird. Doing, um you know six feet did that did that quell the beast at all or would it still feel like to some degree and i actually felt really nervous playing that first show i'm like well here you are i mean you've missed this but wait do i remember how to do this and then (laughs) because it wasn't the black fires it's a session gig i thought well i've got i've got to really nail her stuff because she's paying me for this yeah um we did another one of those in lennox massachusetts again beautiful scenery um but the crowd's miles away and they're clapping, but it's not, it's not quite the same. Yeah. You know, like when we played in, you know, North Davidson and fucking oh full, full Marshall stacks and yeah. yeah. People in your face. My uh, producer, he's also a musician. He terrified me. He goes, you know, you're, you know, if they bring this back, even with social distancing, you're screwed. And I was like, what do you mean? He goes, you like, spit why would you me. say that to me? Yeah. And he's like, 
you play harmonica and you grab people by the neck and get face to face with them. That's your style. And I was like, Oh my God, you're right. Like it's such like, is it, you know, part of it's like, yes, I get to sing the words that I wrote, but I like really is like this massive synergy that just comes with a crowd in the best possible way, which unfortunately we don't see have We see crowd, uh, crowd personality taking over in bad ways. And they're like, you know, we're able to harness that in a great way in what we do, especially these small club gigs. Oh my God, like nothing beats that in my opinion. I, I, I imagine the Aerosmith gig, I'm going to go out on a limb. The Aerosmith gig is like uh, a, an incredibly big deal to say you were there. It's a great stage. You can run around. The sound's incredible. There's more people you've ever played for in your life. Yeah. But if you can put a thousand people in a small room, I mean, the energy there is, uh, I mean, we played to 10,000 people. I remember we opened up for Hailstorm and they had just won a Grammy yeah. and and it was outdoor festival. And it was like really cool. Like I, I was like, oh, wow, I can run around like Axl Rose. I ne- like that was my dream. I was like, can I run from side stage to side stage in a fast sprint with my hand out, right? Doing a, ha, <laughs> like I did yeah. the whole thing. <laughs> I was like, I just want to do it once. But when we opened up for Slash in uh, Cincinnati. Yeah, I remember was, that. I was so jealous of that one. Oh, yeah. yeah it was, wow. was 4,000 people sold out, and that was the most intense experience I'd ever felt because there's like an intangible – well, actually, I would even say it's tangible energy where you could like just grip it. And I know you know what I mean, because like you've got some of the greatest clubs in the world there in New York where you have that opportunity of these places that just cultivate mm-hmm. that combination of history, the people that are there. <sighs> it blows me out that New York's, you know, been hit so hard by this whole thing. How is New York doing, by the way, from a professional standpoint and music standpoint? Yeah, I mean, that's a great question. I think New York obviously is known for its grittiness and the kind of the the tough persona of the its inhabitants so you know like we'll make it through no matter what and you know i mean i moved here what in 2008 yeah it was a tough time that was a tough time obviously there are many yorkers like oh this is nothing you should have been here in the 70s and times square and i know that they have the hbo show uh, right yeah taxi driver style Taxi driver style. Yeah. Um, so in and amongst all of that, um, no, there has been a real effect. I mean, the the streets of New York, you know, from March sort of onwards, I was able to see because I was leaving my house to go to work every day as kind of um, a frontline essential worker. Mm. Uh, it was really odd to see. I mean, just the streets just so, so, so quiet. You know, that movie, I Am Legend, with Will mm. Smith, you know, aside from the over, there wasn't the overgrown moss and stuff on the, on the roads, but right. just dead. You know, and it was like that for, for months before they even had sort of the first uh, openings. Um, yes, yeah, so I think it's been, it's been difficult uh, for people. I know I'd done some consultations for a couple of companies that, um, you know, for a lot of people that are non-essential workers, they had to work from home. So they live at home, they work at home, and then they're not leaving because there's nothing else to do. Maybe you're allowed to mm. take a walk around the block and even running wasn't encouraged, you know, all these restrictions. So I did some consultations, you know, people were starting to have anxiety disorders that they'd not had before, or some, you know, panic attacks. 
which makes sense given that if you're not escaping your whatever 700 800 foot apartment and then you have to work there as well you know it's a recipe for, for that kind of response so yeah. yes it's certainly affected people i've seen that as a clinician um it's affected me personally although i was able to leave every day because of you know being a, right you had an worker. outlet yeah um and then that said i've also seen kind of a resilient you know response i mean you've you've heard obviously new york it's almost like the purge for a little bit you know we had riots um in response to George Floyd, um, you know, the police system in general, mm-hmm. um, which I think showed people's resilience in terms of, yeah, they're fighting back against, you know, stresses. It's interesting. Would they have responded in the same way if COVID wasn't happening? I mean, pro- probably not, but there was a lot of pent up aggression that people wanted to, to do. And, you know, peaceful protests. Obviously, you had the downside of that. People were rioting and looting as well. I don't know. Um, yeah, obviously, you don't condone that, but right. it shows people aren't that beaten down necessarily. <laughs> yeah, they're, they're able so to organize easy. themselves and steal $5,000 handbags in Soho. I mean, right. You know, um, then that died down. Um, we had sort of a summer, you know, bars were open and we we're doing this kind of outdoor. Outdoor dining in the bus lane, as <laughs> the people were joking. It's typically where the buses go, but there were, you know, obviously that. Yeah, it's hilarious. Like, so they had like uh, outdoor dining seats, like, you know, like Little Italy style, let's call it like how I would see it in the yeah. bus lanes. Yeah, but yeah, because obviously all bars and restaurants that wanted to be open don't necessarily have the, you know, you're quite right in Little Italy, they do have that option some right. don't so you know like heidelberg for instance i don't know why i'm giving them a shout out but second avenue 86th street or something they're not used to having like outdoor dining but yeah here you are on the <laughs> pavement sidewalk they've set up tables and we've got all the fucking traffic going by <laughs> you know it's but, like a little sliver of beauty and it's something you would never experience in new york yeah so that's interesting you, you're drinking your beers and there's heavy traffic going That's by. That's hilarious. Yeah, because I was so worried about this. I, I'm far from being a behavioral expert, but it just, you know, I pay attention to people, you know, behaviors. I'm certified in like emotional intelligence and Hartman Index, mm-hmm. things like that, and just how people see themselves in the world. It just made me so nervous as. You know, for for better or worse, what you think of the guy, the one thing that did resonate me with Donald Trump was he said, we don't want the cure to be worse than the disease itself. And to me, I know he was talking economically mostly. To me, I heard uh, mental health, right? And uh, so where do we go from here with just not knowing what the future holds. Like how do people break through this? Cause there's some people that, like you said, they were struggling with things before this and it exacerbated it. I mean, what, what's, what's the first line of defense? I mean, not everybody can get on a zoom call and hit their guitar and, you know, I'm, I'm playing music with my guys. So like, mm-hmm. what do you see? Like, what do you do? What do you think we should be looking for? It's oh, a tough, tough question. I, I think um, initially it's like, recognizing that if you feel something is wrong, um, 
having um, these resources to go towards. So New York, there have been these advertisements for, you know, um, Oh, for the for the audience, he said advertisements. Oh yeah, advertisements. Yeah, sorry, advertisements. <laughs> <laughs> what the fuck did he just say? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> sorry, let me just. I had another drink. Oh yeah. Yeah. What are you sip? What are you drinking on? So that was Jameson, but um, oh, that's a great sipper. It was. It really was a great sipper. Now um, I found some cider. So cheers. Cheers. A good Englishman. Um, Drinking cider. Yeah, just don't tell the English people at home that it's made of pears. Is that Although a big pear, pear cider is pretty good. All right. There's a Swedish cider called Copperberg, which is made of pears. It's pretty good. Um, anyway, so, yeah, there have been some like, advertisements yeah. in New York, basically talking about, like, the, the stress of COVID, and if you need help, text so-and-so for, for resources, you know, 311, that sort of thing. Um, yeah, I think being yeah educated that it's it's okay not to feel okay, and that I suppose if you have outlets, some people naturally just given their level of education or just who they are, will think if I don't feel right, well they'll almost sort of know where to go. They can call their their PCP and get a referral for a therapist, or go on ZocDoc.com and type in their insurance and get a therapist. A lot of New Yorkers already have therapists. So mm. I think, um, yeah, sort of the first line is having some kind of support system, either outside professional help or, I don't know, through the people that you live with. Um, if you're predisposed to any kind of issues, you know, I mean, you've seen an uptick in like mood disorders, substance use disorders during this time which which makes sense because yeah it, it makes total sense you know if there's if there are these like small cracks which will you know are the predispositions to to these various disorders you put some stress on those then you get the expression of the yeah what, what freaks me out is um not that i'm i don't think i'm here but like uh someone like me who is you're naturally stressed, but it's like you stress, like you use the stress to be productive <laughs> and to do things right. Like, so if there's any relationship stress, use that to take your wife on a date, right? To go, all right, I need to lock it up and go here. Or if there's a little stress in your business life, you use that to like push through some productivity when something that nobody planned for, like a pandemic hits you, someone who's not been typically predisposed or ever told that hey you know what you you, you could be said i have a weird kind of feeling like you know we're probably all at some point susceptible to a mental health situation yeah because we have things in our life whether it's other people or too much wine or we uh you know whatever <laughs> the case is and so my fear is like the person that's been clinically normal for 20 30 40 years then gets added this extra thing that's kind of freaking me out. I mean, and, and I have no basis for that. Only just kind of my personal experience where I can catch myself and go, "All right, man, stop, think, assess what's going on, and and respond appropriately, mm -hmm. and limit the emotional response." Right? Mm -hmm. Try and have more logical responses. Um, I can't. That's kind of like makes me nervous about. 
that's the underbelly of this whole thing, right? How many of those people are, because it's easy for us to go, all right, you were clinically uh, predisposed to some situations, but then we have a whole percentage of people that kind of fell under the radar that you could be like, ah, you're on the fence, you lock it up. Yeah. You could talk to somebody every now and then. That's the next service. So how, like, like, do you even like, how do you like, what if you have a spouse like that? Like, how do you help someone like move into that? And they're getting I mean, help, I guess. Yeah, I mean, it is. It, it's a fair point. Is that people that have been, yeah, healthy, you know, for quote, quote unquote, for a, a better word, then suddenly you have this massive stress, like how, and then they start responding in these kind of maladaptive ways or showing signs. Yeah, I mean, it's it's a great point. That again, like I said, I'd, I'd had people referred to me because of that. They were, and they said to me, "I've never needed this before, but clearly something's wrong." Yeah. Let me ask you, how does someone get referred to you? I mean, I want to just clarify the process for anybody hearing this because I've never, well, no, I shouldn't say that. In my, I was, I tell people I was like a test child for Ritalin and Adderall. Like, I, <laughs> I really was. I Did mean, you like them? Uh, there, you know, it's a whole, it's a whole journey of people. I mean, some of them I, I thought were really wonderful. Some of them were horrible. Yeah. I'll never forget there was one we get, I suppose. Yeah. yeah, yeah, it really is. I remember so like there was just some people that were fantastic. I remember since we went down this road, I had um been prescribed when Adderall was first out to 20 milligrams twice a day. I had to be like 12 or 13. So 40 milligrams a day. And as someone that was also prescribed Adderall in college who could barely take five milligrams without really altering who I was. It like terrified me to think about my mom would give me 40 in the morning and I would get 40 in the afternoon or 20 in the morning and 20 afternoon. Like it was absolutely biologically altering who I was. Yeah. I saw, so I had drawn, I, I guess they did the thing where they like, draw me a picture of like how you're feeling. And this was, I was about 13. And I drew a skateboard ramp, like a half pipe with this dude like skating because I was in like skating and surfing and I'm a punk rocker. And I had just drawn a bunch of skull and crossbones all over the, like that's this is like what I handed him. I was like, here, skating in skulls. <laughs> like, And then I remember right before I went to the Citadel, I had a reevaluation with the same psychiatrist and He's, I walk in with a Grateful Dead t-shirt and I like Grateful Dead rock and roll stuff, but I liked more their t-shirt, like the imagery. And he goes, he starts laughing. I said, what are you laughing about? He goes, I have the picture you drew me from when you were 13 and he puts it on the, on the table and it's all the skulls and crossbones. He goes, I see not much has changed. And I was like, it was it tell you because it's like, he says, it's who you are. He's like, I'm not going to argue with this. I just want to see how you're doing. That individual was good. I've had other people who, um, when I got in trouble for uh, some minor offenses for like underage drinking and smoking weed, um, that was one of those like court appointed people. And I remember she told my mother that she was sure that I was using hard drugs when I'd never even looked at cocaine or anything like that. I just had only, I drank beer underage and smoked a little bit of weed. And she thought I was like this master uh, lying, you know, manipulator. And, yeah. I, and I, it was weird that she 
extracted that and told that to my mother. My mother uh, and my father, to their credit, thought that was ridiculous and recognized her ridiculousness. So like there's kind of a, and those are the last people that I ever met. It probably all ended right before I went to college. Yeah. Um, so it was, you know, my experience is limited, but, but um, varied. And I don't know where we're going with that, but in terms of like, uh, well, it does, it does relate to what you asked me. Cause you said, you know, for people listening out there, how would they get referred to someone like, yeah, me? that's, that's the, yeah, that was the original question. Yeah. And also speaks to what you said, um, not to dissuade anyone, the quality of any professional you ever meet can vary. I mean, think about most people's experiences with doctors are, you know, medical uh, doctors, not psychiatrists, obviously they're medical doctors too, but you know, you go for whatever ailments you have as you grow up there are better and worse doctors and it's that is the luck of the draw that's terrifying that it's a luck of the draw but it's the truth though isn't it yeah i mean i suppose now in this day and age actually there are yelp reviews and there are kind of um in network yeah for insurance companies that trusted providers that can kind of provide some assurance of quality control um but yeah, how you would see someone like me? Well, in, again, since I don't. Well, let, let me let me clarify just a little bit. So, like, if I see that um, my brother is struggling, mm-hmm. right? With COVID hits, there's an extra stressor on him. Anthony has helped me through a couple of things. How do I go about like just? nudging someone to just talk. I mean, because really, it's, to me, I feel like it's the first step. It's like, you just should talk to somebody. Right. Well, you'd obviously want to have the conversation with him first um, and approach him in a careful and considered manner that, you know, doesn't come across as, well, you better go do this. More that, you know, I'm, I'm your brother. I care for you. Um, I could be totally off base, but I feel like I've noticed a change in you and is this stressful? You know, this yeah. helped me. Um, and he pr- would probably acknowledge that. Right. Um, and then, well, this helped me. Would you consider, you know, and then you'd kind of make the connection between the clinician and the prospective patient, mm-hmm. obviously, ideally speaking, the prospective patient contacts the clinician and, you know, again, cause this is self-selecting. Um, again, this is like also an ideal scenario of, uh, for people that don't know how to do that. Again, it can be this kind of chance factor of seeing one of these advertisements where they read it and they're like, well, if something is wrong and yeah, okay, that does apply to me. Um, Or the chance factor of a a sibling or a friend saying, hey, are you okay? Um, But it all involves in this general education of mental health um, solutions are an option you know, mm-hmm. uh, this like kind of wider framework. Because, again, people don't necessarily think that that is an option. Do you see what I mean? Yeah, I think the yeah. only time it you hear it is, and this is going to sound super shitty, but, like, we only hear this conversation strike up when there's, like, this massive tragedy, right? There's a shooting. We take something extreme. Yeah. Yeah. And then everyone's like, oh, we got to pay attention to mental health. When, I mean, you referenced Freud earlier. I mean, we've had access to uh, loads of data and then mounds and mounds of 
improvements on how the human psyche works that's there it just i guess it's frustrating to feel like i mean it has to be frustrating for you where you're like hello we're over here just come say hi uh yes yeah i, I would agree um yeah because um you know what we do obviously is helpful although at the same by the same token once you have those patients it's kind of a question you dread getting asked but well okay now i'm here how does this help me now the thing about psychology as a field psychotherapy as a field i mean it's still not that well understood because it deals with the intangible you know um meaning yeah we mean if you, if you think about like so you know in, in terms of the lingo it's a psychotherapy process and outcome that's kind of the research that, that answers this question how does psychotherapy work you know and it's patient might come to wait so i just like talk to you a stranger and i just like talk to you how's that going to help me it's a great question right um wait so so is it that you're a stranger and i just tell you my problems is that how it helps because you're a stranger and you're not somebody i know therefore somehow i can open up to you more um is it that i talk and then you reflect my words back to me or is that i just keep talking and eventually i have some moment of insight do you see what i'm getting at it's like mm. uh what's kind of the they talk about mechanisms of, cha of change or active ingredients you know in terms of like medical research but in medical research you know you give a pill there's some drug interaction or you take the appendix out it's causing the issue right what about a psychological issue can you touch the psychological issue can you remove it um, yes, there are medical uh, solutions in terms of pills for like chemical imbalances, but you know, like the trauma that you had as a kid, does, is that, does that have a location in your head? And then um, the primary conduit for therapy is, are, are words, right? So words yeah. that you can't touch that relate to feelings that I can't see. Did I listen to, do you see what I'm getting at? It's yeah. Like, and really, this is getting into the realms of kind of science fiction because we don't even have the methods to answer these questions. Right. And it goes back to uh, luck of the draw with a doctor. So like, what is your preferred method? Is it like, I don't know much about this, but I know there's like Socratic questioning, right? And there's mm -hmm. different methods to get to the root of it. So which one do they all, by the way, do they, do, is a certain method work for a certain per person? Is it um, preference of the doctor? Like when you're trying to get to the root of someone's, uh, you know, problem, you're like, because obviously you're always dealing with the symptom and you're trying to get to the cause. Right. Well, yes, that is one, one method, for instance, and that's like a very kind of medical model. So cognitive behavioral therapy, which is a very popular therapy, you know, is kind of deemed a gold standard for some, um, you know, the research has shown and works well for mood disorders, anxiety works on the model that like thoughts lead to behaviors, lead to emotions. And so part of the therapy is kind of cognitive restructuring, exposure to the fear of stimuli, you know, working on behavioral principles. So that's one of them. Freud who came much before that was, um, you know, father of modern psychotherapy, he worked on like a belief of the unconscious and that we're really not aware of 
necessarily all that is going on and that motivates our behavior. So the easiest way to get at that is to allow a patient just to speak freely, freely associate. Uh, and then the therapist who's listening carefully at some point starts to put themes together. And also the act of speaking is some kind of cathartic release. So you get to talk about the, the problem. What would be an example of like a theme that he, he would have been looking or you would look for? Like, what's that mean? Um, well, I suppose, for instance, if someone keeps talking about the various ways that, you know, um, I don't know, like a patient that keeps getting into little scuffles, verbal or otherwise. So you might have a patient, for instance, like I do, who every so often seems to like get into these, I don't know, problematic interactions with staff and talks about being disrespected and you move them to a different floor and whatever, lo and behold, they have another problem with a different staff member. And the common element is the patient here. Um, so I do have someone in mind, but you know, th this person in particular was talking about, um, doesn't, didn't seem to matter necessarily who, who it was, but would talk to him about, um, would say something and then he would feel disrespected or slighted. And, and then he would say sometimes in session to me, like, don't they even know who I am and what I could do to them? And like, really like, you know, um, they should respect the patient and, I think for them, there was just this real insecurity that people didn't value who he was. Mm. Um, and he did have a history in which he was kind of respected in business and where he lived. But then, you know, fast forward years later, he lives where he lives. He's got these medical ailments and he has to answer to these medical professionals. And yeah, maybe part of his um, problem uh is true. They don't respect him, but not everyone. Obviously, most of them did. It's just that he was so highly sensitive to, mm. you know, being the man, being the strong male character. Whereas now he's kind of weak, weaker, and any little thing he'd take it as a disrespect. Right, you so know, you, you identify the theme is, yeah. like just like this endless search for respect, which honestly. Could be endless, I would imagine. I mean, yeah, it could be, you know. And, and yeah. so Freud might, you know, say, you know, go back to and and not just Freud, like neo Freudians, you know, uh, newer analytic psychodynamic clinicians. Well, let's go back to his past. Where did he learn this? Mm. Why is he searching for respect and recognition all the time? This need for power, need for achievement. Where does this come from? And then I don't want to worry myself or you, but you know, our desire to get on stage and play our music. And <laughs> well, be, I've been, yeah, yeah. No, I'm, I, I'm well aware of probably what's, you know, wrong with me psychologically. It's interesting you said that not, not all of it has to be horrible. Some of it facilitates really great things about us. Well, and it's, some of it's normal too. It's not pathological. Yeah, right. It's just methods of accessing what's going on with the patient. I mean, we mentioned CBT, dynamic analytic therapy, there's dialectical behavior therapy. There, there are many others, you know. Yeah, it's fascinating. I, you know, I remember, um, so I can't remember where it was. It might have even just been listening to like some old ass Anthony Robbins tapes or some shit like that. But like, we're talking about like how you think about money and, and success and the paradigms that were built for you basically by your parents. And it was like, ask yourself what you were taught about 
money and success. And I'll, I hear, and my father is uh, very successful and a beautiful, well-balanced human being. But I, I'm afraid that the message that was sent skewed me. And I was like, and this goes to the words. He's like, you have to sacrifice, right? You have to sacrifice to be successful in this world. You have to sacrifice the joys in this world. And that's why I could never understand how the hell I could be playing rock and roll and then try and make a living as a entrepreneur. But you're still trying. Yeah, right? well, exactly. And we both are. We, yeah. We're both, we're both trying. But like, you think about the words, who the fuck wants to sacrifice? Like you would like actually. Not many it, people. Right. Like, what, what do you mean? I got to sacrifice. What do I got to sacrifice? Joy, family a virgin at the altar of the volcano. Like, I don't know what do what it doesn't sound fun. It doesn't sound like something I want to do. So maybe, mm-hmm. and this is the start of the things I started to question early. And this is probably the benefit of having a slight understanding of who maybe it was like, have I avoided certain things because I'm avoiding a sacrifice. And if I just switch the paradigm of it, like, all right, so maybe it's just like, maybe you're, you should change the word sacrifice to a minor investment of time into a future benefit, right? Like those are the things I would try and tell myself weird shit. that goes on in my mind, Anthony, quite frankly. And yeah. if you were in here, it'd be, you'd be like, you're, you're, you're fucked up. <laughs> well, I, and vice versa. I mean, I, yeah, I'm often surprised and I couldn't imagine being what, what, you know, like just like what's going on in your own brain. Well, it kind of relates to something I was thinking of as you were speaking. Um, Cause as you were, you know, as you were speaking and talking about your father and his experiences and you have what I'd say insight into where this comes from. You're like, okay, well I heard this and now I'm ambivalent about sacrifice and following certain desires or giving up certain desires. The thing about, psychology psychotherapy or thinking in this way is it's a pandora's box that once you open it's you can't really think another way and it's like this awareness and you in in some ways you almost see more than you want to see Mm. but that that vision can lead to like a fuller more genuine existence but sometimes it's a real fucking pain in the ass and you like, oh, why, why am I now like viewing it through this lens or is this pathological in some ways? Right. Like, like did, did this, am I really thinking through someone else's lens? That's the terrifying part of it. It's like, did, was this built for me? That's what freaked me out at first. It's like, it was this whole paradigm that I'm living by built by somebody else based on a narrative from a totally different decade in, in lifestyle. It's, you know, enough to, not the shit on anything that my parents gave me. They gave me way more good than bad, but we have to all live like a certain way forward with the new information that we have. Yeah. Um, That's it with that insight. Then you have the potential to, to behave differently because you kind of catch yourself. Um, Just give me a second. Uh, I'm getting the low battery signal. I do have a power cable. Get it. Very close to him. The beauty of this is we don't even have to edit. Nobody cares. <laughs> yeah, people are like, oh, I plug things in. Yeah. Yeah. Back in the day, I would have been like, oh, we got to edit this out to my producer, Alex. And now it's like, yeah, nobody cares. He's All like, right. oh, people are human. People yeah, seem ex- more human. Yeah, it's weird. And, all right. So um, as we round this out, 
I have to hit this. And if you're not, if you don't have experience or actually, if um, you don't believe in it, feel free to tell me. I just want your perspective. But like, as we went through the elections, I noticed that some states have uh, legalized like psilocybin and some other hallucinogenics on a medical standpoint. Right. Hmm. And I know that a lot of that's being used to deal with PTSD and there's a lot of document. I mean, there's a whole lot of information out there on how it's kind of helping people recenter a little bit. Do you have uh, an opinion on kind of the new, what seems like a new wave of some legalizations or at least it seems like there's money and um, inspiration behind people wanting to dip their toe in that part of psychotherapy. Right. Um, I suppose the, the inspiration as well and the, this idea of a quick fix. I'm not saying that psychotropic medication isn't helpful. I've seen it firsthand help, like Manhattan Psychiatric Center. You'd have people swinging, spitting, kicking, floridly psychotic, who then two weeks later through Haldol or Depakote or Clozeril or something were then able to speak about their experiences and say, well, I don't really remember doing that. And, you know, so I've seen that, especially for a severe pathology, I've seen it work. But I think there's this fantasy sometimes that your psychological issues can be fixed with a pill, which to me seems naive. Mm. Um, If it's purely to do with some kind of neurophysiological imbalance, neurochemical imbalance, then yes then fixing that should solve it, right? But rarely is that the case. There's often things to talk through and talk about and talk about the the emotional distress, right, that occurs with anxiety, depression, bipolar disorder, you know, whatever. Um, I would lump in this kind of microdosing psilocybin, for instance, in the same boat. I'd be wary of people just doing it because, okay, well, I have this issue, so I'm just going to do it and, I don't even have to go to talk therapy because, you know, you just take this and it just helps you. Well, yeah, I guess, it, yeah, if that really does help, wonderful. Um, my worry is that it's not quite that simple. But that said, in the same way as more traditional psychotropic medications, they can be helpful and the research does show that they can help with chronic depression and kind of re recalibrating the brain i think you you mentioned in terms of neurochemistry so yeah i think absolutely uh people should be willing to try it um but also be willing to i don't know i suppose like i'm saying open the pandora's box in a way that you know if you have issues don't just take a drug and expect it to fix your psychological issues which gets back to this idea of the medical model right cut the appendix out give the pill for penicillin for some kind of infection. Psychological issues aren't, I don't think, as simple as that. Mm, They're they're intangible. They relate to intangible experiences. Yeah, that's a Um, good point, right? So, like, the the fear is, like, we've had access to all kinds of psychedelics forever, right? Like, I ate mushrooms in high school, right? So it's not like we haven't had access to the, it did, breakfast, you know. <laughs> yeah, it yeah. didn't change. Well, who knows what it did? I mean, 
Um, but I, I think, you know, it's interesting. Like those, a lot of those experiences, if you hear people, I haven't had a personal experience with psilocybin or, or um, any hallucinogenics in a very long time. It literally has been since probably late high school, early college, but I was in the different mind frame where there was no pain. I was living a great life of having a good time, but the, the people that say there are benefits, there is a shaman, right? Like there's someone that guides you through an experience. Conduit. Yeah. 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 And it, not that you need to like start working your way to being Anthony Mullen, the shaman, but it, <laughs> it does like kind of open the door where like, if we're going to explore this as being a true medical practice, well then let's make sure that people aren't doing exactly what you said, which was microdosing mushrooms and microdosing psilocybin and expecting it just click because there's probably there's a lot of history in psychotherapy that should collide with a door opener that needs to be quite frankly explored and we've just now allowed that to happen we're like on ground zero of that happening from a medical standpoint mm -hmm. if you know what i mean like this is the first time probably from today as we're speaking moving forward is the first time we're going to actually have true white papers and psychologists and doctors evaluating this. So it's, it's, it's a great point that you're like, don't just take the red pill and think it's going to fix your problems. Cause you've probably been fucked up for a long time and, the, and some mushrooms ain't going to fix it. <laughs> yeah, that's it. It's the, yeah. Essentially that's a, a good, a good way of putting it. Um, yeah. I mean, I understand why it, people might think that way, and it's just that these quick fixes, yeah, it rarely, rarely works. I mean, there's an argument that there there exist certain types of pathology, you know, like these pure chemical depressions that you know you just need your antidepressant and then it'll solve itself. But I feel like those are very rare. That the the adjunct of psychotherapy is really helpful, but yeah. it's not fun. It's not pleasant. It's fucking awful sometimes for clinician and patient alike but there can be like i said these these real gains that can be made that affect the way you think lifelong and can live more authentic genuine yeah. experiences so this is kind of my last question and I, you do <laughs> not have to answer this i promise you but you can't get pregnant the first time no <laughs> very nice <laughs> but <laughs> Uh, well, you actually. know, you have it. You, very nicely done. But like, do um, as you talk about prescribing any towards a psychotherapy drug for someone, where is there is there like a um, determined threshold clinically where you go, all right, this has gone past the point where I can't extract uh, self care from this person because I just have this weird feeling just from personal experiences from friends and family members where it is quick to get to uh drugs to fix a chemical imbalance and there's a lack of uh, a way to like help somebody from getting to the problem it's it just feels like there's a lot of symptom masking because it's very quick and how easy like is there a threshold like how do you how do you navigate this i mean how do you personally work through this? Uh, meaning when is the appropriate time to. Yeah. Was it appropriate time to prescribe someone with a, with a, yeah. 
Well, I think oftentimes, again, depends who you see, but there's this tradition of, well, you have a psychological, psychiatric issue. Yeah, you sound depressed, you sound anxious. Your PCP will refer you to a psychiatrist and they'll give you the pill straight away first session after meeting with the psychiatrist. Some psychiatrists will also do psychotherapy with you, but quite often they won't. That some may educate you and refer you to a therapist as well, but you yourself may not be interested in that. You're just like, well, let me take the pill and hope for, for the best. Um, as to when to do it, uh, it depends. I'd say, let's say you have, I don't know, a depressed, anxious person, and after a month, maybe six weeks, you're not really starting to see anything, two months least by three months if there's no symptom reduction or feeling better then maybe it's indicated that you would refer out to a adjunct to uh, you know psychotropic treatment through, mm. through a, a psychiatrist or an mp psychiatric nurse um i feel like that doesn't always happen i mean it typically it's the reverse you'll already see a patient who's on medication from day one and then sees the, the therapist um yes. Yeah. I'm not saying that doesn't work, but some of the studies show that therapy works just as well as medication, uh, you know, depending on the type of... Yeah, do you think, is it is it a um, financial thing? Like, is it ex is it more expensive to see a therapist as opposed to getting... Yes, uh, long-term it is. Yeah, and is that, do you think that's a problem? Uh, yeah, absolutely. There's um, a book, I forget the author, I remember one of my mentors at... Columbia, this guy Andrew Gerber, who's a psychiatrist, but well, he has his PhD uh, as well uh, in psychology. He's a yeah, br brilliant guy, like um, adult and child psychiatrist. Well, anyway, he turned me on to his book, Toxic Psychiatry, and it talks about basically this kind of reflexive response to giving psychotropic medications to solve psychological, psychiatric issues. But again, yeah, without much room necessarily for the the psychotherapy part, which I think for a lot of people needs to be there. Again, the mm. pills don't just solve a psychological psychiatric issue; like they just get you to a place where you can talk. But the the issue still exists, for instance. Mm. Um, yeah, so I, I do think that it's an issue. It also relates to this medical model that's been applied to psychology as a field, meaning you, you prescribe medication to fix a problem. I'm not saying there's a problem necessarily with that, but for psychological issues, they are generally more complex. And then I keep coming back to this. There's an aspect of our existence, which is completely intangible. Yes. You have a physical brain that you can touch. You know, if you go about, back to Descartes, you know, I think therefore I am mind body problem. You have a physical brain that you can touch, but yet you have an entire human existence that you can't. We use words to describe it, what's in our head and stuff, but it's, yeah, it's, again, you can't touch it. So you need a field like psychology yeah. that deals with the intangible. You see what I'm getting at? Yeah, it's, it's, uh, like the Honestly, no, it's a it's a bummer just because the only thing I, I keep going back to just the most simplistic example is if I want to get acupuncture, chiropractic 
or massage therapy, which will improve my health. Good luck trying to get health coverage over that. But if you want to get a pain pill for your hip that hurts, very simple. Mm-hmm. And it's um, you yeah, never these biases that are right, and you're never dealing with the root of it. So, all right. Um, now that I'm fully depressed and a half <laughs> bottle of wine in, <laughs> yeah, do we stop this now? I swear, I. And, but, uh, all right. So let's round this bad boy out. Dude, this has been incredible. This has been really fun. Um, what's next? What's ne- first of all? Tell me what's next. How do you feel about like? Let's get back to the music real quick. How do you feel like? Uh, when do you feel like the black fires are getting back on stage? I mean, is there hope? I mean, in North Carolina, we're saying spring. How you I'll go, I'll go, I'll go with the spring. Um, I know that there have been places in Jersey around here. We actually, I lie. So we did one black fire show for the Russian community, which was very, <laughs> very much tied into. I, I need to, you know, you know, who loves Russian. I need to to denounce my Italian heritage and just pretend like I'm Russian because apparently it'll get me a lot of places. Yeah. Um, So, yeah, we played one show like, you know, in deepest Brooklyn where where they live. Um, I think we're, I mean, our priority is to record, but it would be nice to maybe do like a show. There are a few venues in Jersey that are doing them, you know, with distancing, that kind of thing. Um, I'd be up to do that. Yeah. Well, um, I mean, I think it's into next year, isn't it? I think that's the same yeah. for New York, that we're not yeah. going to be able to have not. proper live shows, which is, is a shame. But but I suppose for us, at least we've got the excuse. Well, that means we get, get our heads down, get this record finished at Germano yep. Studios, and then be ready to release some content. Yeah, we've um, we've recorded two songs. We're back in the studio at the beginning of January. Mm-hmm. Hopefully, crank out an album. Uh, I talked to the owner of the Milestone here in Charlotte, which is our it's basically our CBGB of the Southeast. Yeah, which one day we we got to get you down here, brother. I was gonna say, I, if we could do it. Next, next year or something seriously i mean this is a club that no. you would you never played the milestone have you like we didn't bring no you down. no i've heard of it but yeah I, so this place is incredible but um i talked to the owner he said spring obviously he's hopeful but um we'll see but yeah it's kind of uh stay in front of people record the album that's where mm-hmm. we are and uh we're in the same boat just i guess it's create 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 and be happy yeah i mean it's uh, credit to you you guys as well you know you're trying to turn the situation into you know like you said use the stress of whatever yeah situation. I, you know man, I, to- as a lyricist it's it's <laughs> all this you've shit. got plenty to write about yeah exactly like <laughs> when i wrote some of those early albums it was fueled by uh i was dating a uh stripper and she cheated on me when i was on tour and it was like this whole there's a whole lot of things to pull from to write music now i'm perfectly happily married wife kid there's not a lot of problems in my life and so this gave me this gave me a little something extra to pull from so the con like you said the content's there uh 
and yeah. for the record, my wife knows I did date a stripper, so this won't be news for if she listens to the podcast. Ashley, right? Yeah, yeah, she, yeah. Ashley, she, she's not the stripper for the record. <laughs> no, I, I, I know that. Right? Ashley's the one. No, I know you do. <laughs> um, my brother, I couldn't think of a better way than this. Thank you so much. He, Thank you. Cheers, cheers to the dichotomy of rock and roll and professionalism. I love you. I miss you. And when New you. York opens back up, I can't wait to see you again. Manitoba's no longer exists, from what I understand. Unfortunately, but we'll, we'll find somewhere. And then also North Carolina will will come down. I would love come to down to the milestone. My brother, I love you so much. Thank you. Um, love you too. Till next time, man. Cheers. Cheers. <laughs>